Our text this morning as we hear from the living God in his word is Hebrews 11 verse 4. And in connection with that verse, also Genesis chapter 4 verses 1 to 16. Louise read both of those texts earlier, but as always, having your Bible available will be helpful so that you can follow along here as we go. Last week, we began our study of Hebrews chapter 11, the focus of which, of course, is faith. And we could already tell the direction the pastor who wrote Hebrews planned to go in this chapter from verse 2. The pastor began in verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for, verse 2 says, by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, the people of old received their commendation. That is what the pastor now aims to substantiate beginning in verse 4. And he'll do it through a series of illustrations from the personal history of particular individuals who responded to God in faith during the centuries preceding the coming of Christ. The people of old described in verses 4 and following in Hebrews 11 elucidate and enrich what it means to live by faith. And though this week we did not have the benefit of hearing the entire chapter read again as we did last week, I think it's worth reflecting on the fact that there's a lot of variety in this chapter. The pastor's understanding of faith is not simplistic. He does not force all of the men and women we will read about here into one single mold. Rather, he uses the various ways in which these men and women are described in the biblical text to elucidate the various facets of faith. That's part of what makes Hebrews 11 such a beloved and even fun portion of Scripture, I think. Let's not lose sight of the fact that these are real people we're talking about. We tend to think of of the folks mentioned in Hebrews 11 as being heroes, but I'm going to resist that terminology as we study this chapter. It's true, of course, that most of the examples uh, the pastor selects are from the, the high points of the biblical narrative. The figures the pastor mentions here were used in extremely significant ways by the Lord to steer the course of salvation history but not because they were heroes, or at least not in the sense that we tend to mean that, because there's a lot about the individuals on this list that is less than admirable. Noah got drunk and lay in his tent. Abraham lied about Sarah. Isaac lied about Rebekah. Jacob was a deceiver. Moses committed murder. The people of Israel were a bunch of ungrateful grumblers. Gideon was a doubter. David, an adulterer. These people of old, they can be held up as examples for us, not because they were perfect, but because in various ways 
they by faith worked with God in God's perfect work. Real faith must be expressed by real people, friends. Real pilgrims who have yet to reach the heavenly city. They are searching. They have not yet arrived. And the point, I think, is neither have we. There are some famous examples in this chapter, but let's remember that the life of faith, the life of faith is a roller coaster. And the shining moments could sometimes be followed by significant failures. So it was for the women and men of old, and so it is for us. And if I may make just one other preliminary observation concerning Hebrews 11 before we begin then in verse 4, notice if you glance through the chapter how the variety of examples given here help us to see that faith works in a variety of situations and that faith may have a variety of outcomes as well, at least in this life. In terms of situations, in Hebrews chapter 11, we have an offering, a transportation to heaven, the building of a boat, the moving of a family, the ability to have a child, obedience in offering that child back to God, the blessing of children, seeing into the future, defying an authority, the choosing of mistreatment above pleasure, the keeping of a religious ordinance, suffering persecution, and more. And in terms of outcomes, note that sometimes faith has an immediate positive outcome, as when the children of Israel passed through the sea, or the walls of Jericho fell, or widows received their dead back by resurrection. But at other times, faith can be rewarded with a delayed outcome or even a negative one, as we see it. Abel still got murdered. Abraham had to wait for the son of the promise. Others would be tortured, mocked, beaten, left destitute, stoned, put in prison, generally mistreated. As one author puts it, these do not fit easily into the see all the wonderful things God wants to do in your life gospel of modern Western Christianity. Yet the picture is biblical. Our application of this passage must point out that faithful people sometimes do not see results in this life. And yet, as verse 2 says, no matter the circumstances or the outcomes, faith is what God commends, brothers and sisters. Faith will be rewarded by God. To live by faith is to look beyond the immediate. It is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen, as we discussed at length last week. And verse 6 says, God rewards those who seek him. Faith believes that and acts accordingly, no matter the circumstances and regardless of the outcome in this life. With that, we begin then now in verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, 
through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, the pastor says, though he died, he still speaks. Our focus this morning now will be on Abel. Next week, when we consider Enoch in verses 5 and then verse 6, we'll see how the stories of Abel and Enoch together at the opening of Hebrews 11 establish something of a pattern for all the persons who will follow in this chapter and for us. But about the two brought together, we'll say more next week. For this morning, we'll focus in just on Abel himself, using verse 4 of Hebrews 11 to organize our thoughts. Firstly, and for by far the longest in this sermon, we'll consider Abel's offering, number one. Second, we'll then consider Abel's commendation. And then thirdly, we'll comment on Abel's witness. So first, Abel's offering. Second, Abel's commendation. And third, Abel's witness. That's just me moving through the content of verse 4 of Hebrews 11 in order. But as you can probably already guess, really the whole ballgame is in the first point. Because only if we rightly understand Abel's offering can we understand the nature of Abel's faith that is the means both of his commendation by God and of his ongoing witness. And so here we go. The critical question to answer concerning Hebrews 11 verse 4 is, what was it that made Abel's sacrifice more acceptable, as the ESV puts it, than Cain's? Everything rides on that question, and it seems like it should be a simple enough question to answer, but it isn't. Because now having heard the account of Cain and Abel read from Genesis 4 already this morning, you may have realized that the Genesis text doesn't say what made Abel's sacrifice more acceptable than Cain's. Or at least it doesn't explicitly or doesn't seem to say it. In a minute, I will be suggesting that there are some clues in Genesis chapter 4 that help us to answer this question, but let's not pretend it's obvious. For centuries, commentators and scholars have suggested a whole range of reasons for why Abel's sacrifice met with God's approval and Cain's did not. And we will not interact with all of the proposals out there by any stretch, but I will mention a couple of them as we go. But first, we need to orient ourselves a bit. So if you have your Bibles, turn back to Genesis 4, if you would. I had Louise begin to read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, because I wanted us to be conscious here of the immediate context of the Cain and Abel story. This comes right after creation and the fall in the biblical account. So Genesis chapters 1 and 2 present the story of creation, the story of creation that culminates in the creation of man and woman as they're placed in the Garden of Eden and given commands to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and to have dominion. But you know what happens. The man and the woman fail to trust the Lord. And in their disbelief, they disobey God's commandment not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, they're sent out from the garden 
and barred from returning. But all hope is not lost. Verse 20 of Genesis chapter 3 says, The man called his wife's name Eve. That simply means life. He called her Eve because she was the mother of all living. Though their sin led to separation from God, Adam and Eve believed the promise that was entailed in Genesis 3 verse 15 when God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Through the offspring of the woman would come the defeat of the serpent and a return to life with the Lord. That's what Adam's declaring, I think, when he names his wife Eve in Genesis 3 verse 20. And so it is with hope in view that Genesis chapter 4 begins. Now Adam knew Eve his wife and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And then again, verse 2 continues, she bore his brother, Abel. Eve had become the mother of two sons. Surely the Lord's purposes were already beginning now to unfold. And indeed they were, but perhaps not in the way we may have expected them. For we very soon learn that there was something quite different between these two sons of Eve. Let's read the account again, picking up here in verse 2. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, the text says, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. It turns out there was something different about Cain and Abel, the two sons of Eve. And as far as we know, it all began, or rather, it all became evident, when in verse 3, these two brothers bring an offering to the Lord. Now, remember, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4 says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. What we're trying to answer now is what that means. What was it that made Abel's sacrifice more acceptable than Cain's? Specifically then, was it something about the offering itself that made it more acceptable? Or was it something about Abel himself that made it so? I mentioned earlier that you would perhaps be surprised by the range of answers given to these questions. Allow me here simply to mention two of the more common explanations I encountered when I was engaging with 
several faithful interpreters this week. One line of thought focuses on the difference of the two offerings in order to suggest that the point is that animal offerings were of greater value than grain or vegetable offerings. That distinction is then supported by itself a variety of reasonings, but the view I found most often among evangelical interpreters is that God must have given explicit instructions to Cain and Abel, indicating that only animal sacrifices were acceptable. Why? Well, according to some interpreters, it would be important to look back and remember how in Genesis 3, verse 21, God provided garments of animals who had been slain to clothe Adam and Eve's nakedness, symbolically covering their sin. These interpreters then suggest that the point is that from the very beginning, fallen persons may only approach God through blood. And that God therefore rejected Cain's sacrifice because it was bloodless. Whereas Abel's offering of animals indicates that he understood his greatest need was the forgiveness for the forgiveness of his sins. Now, this is a common view, and as attractive as that interpretation may seem in some ways, as we'll see, I think the details of the Cain and Abel story contradict it. I don't think that's exactly what's going on here. Now, a second line of thought that I commonly encountered this week suggests that the issue wasn't actually with the sacrifices themselves, but with the two men themselves. None less than John Calvin held this view. In his Hebrews commentary, Calvin wrote, the sacrifice of Abel was more acceptable than that of his brother only because it was sanctified by faith. More recently, uh, the esteemed commentator F.F. Bruce argues it wasn't Cain's offering as such which was rejected, but rather Cain himself. So which is it? <laughs> What made Abel's offering more acceptable, the offering itself or the inner disposition of the one offering it? Well, I would like to suggest for your thinking this morning that it was both. I think there was something different about the offerings made by Cain and Abel. And I think there was something different about their respective characters as well. And in fact, I want to make the simple suggestion that those two things are connected. That in fact, it's the whole picture. Both the heart motivation and the act of offering itself that gives us the proper understanding of Abel's faith. To begin to see this, look carefully, if you have your Bible, at Genesis chapter 4, Verses 4b and 5a, so this is the last part of verse 4 and the first part of verse 5, at least as the ESV translates it. After the offerings were made, notice how the text says here, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. 
Now, it's a little clearer in the Hebrew syntax for any of you that can follow that than it is in the English. But what I see here is that the text itself seems to distinguish between the offerer and the offering. But then that the point is that it's both of those things that the Lord takes into account. We could translate it this way. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and on his offering, but on Cain and on his offering, he did not look with favor. So I want to try and ask what this Genesis passage says about both of those things. What the offerings, what it says about the offerings Cain and Abel brought, and what it says about their respective characters. So first, concerning the offerings. It seems to me as I study this passage that the terminology used here in Genesis 4 is important. Within the Pentateuch as a whole, that is the first five books of the Bible or the Torah, within the Pentateuch we find a rather precise and usually pretty consistent vocabulary that is used to represent different kinds of offerings. Some categories of offerings, such as the sin offering or the guilt offering, do require the shedding of blood. But in Genesis 4, neither of the terms for sin offering or guilt offering are used. Instead, the word that's used three times in this text for the brothers' offerings is the Hebrew word minka. And what's fascinating to me is that if you look at that word minka in the Pentateuch, it's usually the term that's used of a grain offering. Specifically, in fact, it describes a voluntary offering, a gift offering. And typically, the voluntary offering that's described by that word is an offering of grain. So that, if anything, just looking at the word, it would seem like Abel's the one whose offering is not at least entirely according to what we would expect because his minka is of animals. But why is that? Well, as we were, if we were to look at some other uses of this same word within the Old Testament outside of the Pentateuch, the word minka can be used to speak of bringing gifts or tributes more generally. Sometimes they would be gifts or tributes brought to God as an offering. Sometimes they would just be gifts or tributes brought to superior figures like a king. Uh, we saw this in Samuel, in fact, a few different times. But in such cases, these gifts or these offerings tend to be uh, brought by a person who would bring the gift that was appropriate to that person's standing and vocation. And you would have noticed how in Genesis chapter 4, verse 2, the text explicitly states that Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. So that the point seems to be that it was entirely appropriate that Abel the shepherd would bring a gift of tribute from his flock and that Cain the farmer would bring a gift from the fruit of the ground. In other words, dear friends, the issue of the offering itself hasn't anything to do, as far as I can tell, with the fact that Abel brings animals and Cain brings grain. It's not as though the Lord values shepherds more than farmers. No, rather, I think there's something else 
that the text of Genesis is highlighting here concerning the two offerings that are being made. Notice that whereas in verse 3, it simply says, Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. In verse 4, the storyteller characterizes Abel's offerings from the flocks as of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now listen to how one scholar summarizes the, significant of that, the significance of that fact. Quote, By offering the firstborn, Abel signified that he recognized God as the author and owner of life. In common with the rest of the ancient Near East, the Hebrews believed that the deity, as Lord of the manor, was entitled to the first share of all produce. The first fruits of plants and the firstborn of animals and man were his. The Lord demonstrated that he gave Egypt its life and owned it when he took its firstborn. Israel's gifts from the animals involved those that opened the womb, and their gifts from the ground had to be the first fruits. And then here's the key sentence. Abel's offering conformed with this theology. Cain's did not. Now, do you see the point that's being made here? Abel's gift is qualified by firstborn, but the parallel concept of first fruits does not modify Cain's offering in the text. And then what's more, the text says Abel also offered the fat. Now the fat portions would have been the tastiest part, of course, and therefore would be considered the best burning part of the animal offering. This is not a minor detail in our Genesis passage. Later in the Pentateuch, Leviticus chapter 3, verse 16 says, All fat is the Lord's. There's a good memory verse for you this week. Leviticus 3, verse 16. All fat is the Lord's. Actually, it'd be good for us to commit that one to memory. Because you get the picture? When Abel brings his tribute to the Lord, it's the best he's got to offer. There are two expressions there in verse 4 that describe Abel's gift and emphasize that it was the best of its kind. But there's nothing to parallel either of those things with respect to Cain's offering. Therefore, as one scholar puts it, Abel's sacrifice represents acceptable, heartfelt worship. Cain's represents unacceptable tokenism. Yes, there was a difference in the offering itself. And it was a difference that mattered. But it wasn't that one was a blood sacrifice and the other wasn't, as is often suggested. I think it was that one was the offering of the very best he could bring. And the other was but a token. Then... Look at what comes after that in Genesis chapter 4 as the narrator here now dwells on Cain's character. We'll go more quickly on this part of it. The middle of verse 5, So Cain was very angry, the text says, and his face fell. Now that's not a mild response of disappointment that the Hebrew describes there. This is intense. 
And if the characterization of Cain's offering that we just discussed is accurate, then I think we start to get the picture here. Because Cain is burning with anger. It's the same word that's used of Saul when he burns with anger against David and later plots to kill him. Cain burns with anger here, not because he can't figure out why Abel's offering was received and his was rejected. This isn't a complaint of unfair treatment. I think Cain's angry because he doesn't want to give the best of his crop to the Lord. He's angry at Abel's acceptance, but the point is he's not willing to do what Abel did to get it. You see? It's not subtle here. The Lord says to Cain in verse 7 that Cain is unacceptable. Verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, Cain didn't do well and he knew it. Cain knew what he did was wrong. Sin is crouching at the door, the Lord says to him. The storyteller here is characterizing Cain as a sinner unworthy to worship the Lord. His extreme anger betrays a faithless heart. We can actually see it. His face fell, the text says. It reminds me in part of the contrast that you find in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, which is, of course, the key verse that the pastor had just quoted at the end of chapter 10 of Hebrews when he was bringing in the matter of faith here. But listen to Habakkuk 2, verse 4 in full. It says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. You see, Cain's anger against God is written on his face. The Lord says, sin's desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it, but Cain doesn't. Instead, he progresses in sin from deficient worship to fratricide. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel his brother. Now, <laughs> would you not love to know what they talked about? It would tell us a lot. And actually, there are lots of, there's lots of early Jewish tradition about exactly this, where in various uh, targums, um, trans, or not just translations, but, but expansions on the Hebrew text, in various targums, you can read how rabbis speculated here concerning what it was that Cain and Abel said to one another. It's completely fascinating. But at any rate, verse 8 says, Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then in verse 9, Cain's speech just reveals his unregenerate heart again, right? His sarcastic question, am I my brother's keeper, betrays both his callousness against God and his hatred of his brother made in God's image. And then later in the passage, even after God mitigates his sentence in verse 15 against Cain, Cain then fails finally to respond to God's grace. Verse 16 says, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. Adam and Eve had been driven out. Cain goes and he settles in the land of Nod, east of Eden. 
He is a man without a place. He is outcast from God's presence. He is driven away from the ground itself. He is a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And there you have it. That's my read of Cain and Abel. Cain is unrighteous. Abel is righteous. The New Testament confirms this understanding. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 35, Matthew 23, 35, Jesus refers to righteous Abel. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, the apostle John writes, we should not be like Cain. This is 1 John 3, verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him, John asks? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. According to Jude, Cain spoke blasphemously and thought like an unreasoning animal. Listen to Jude verses 10 and 11. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, this is Jude 11, for they walked in the way of Cain. The way of Cain. The opposite of which is the way of Abel. You see? By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, the pastor writing Hebrews says. Think about that now, after all this work we've done here to try to understand the point. Where do we rightly locate Abel's faith here, brothers and sisters? Is the faith in the actual offering itself? Yes. In offering the best of his flock, we see Abel's faith. But is Abel's faith also then in the inner disposition of the man? In his motivation? Or in other words, is it in his heart? Yes, again. Why? Because the two things are inseparable, you see. Genesis 4, verse 4b says, The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. And I know that you and I don't bring fat portions and bags of grain to church anymore. But it's not that hard to grasp the principle here, is it? The Lord looks favorably upon Abel, not only because of what he offered, but also because what he offered revealed his internal character. Whereas the Lord has no regard for Cain's offering, ultimately because Cain had no regard for the Lord. His offering itself, in fact, showed that that was the case. Brothers and sisters, the pastor would look all the way back to this very earliest post-fall episode and ask his hearers and ask us, which one are you? Righteous Abel or unrighteous Cain? Do we give of our best to the Lord? Not just talking about our money, though of course we can't ignore that either but of all that we are. I was reminded as I studied of what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 
concerning the wealth of generosity on the part of the churches of Macedonia. Do you remember this moment in 2 Corinthians? Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 8 about the generous giving of the churches of Macedonia. And he says in verse 6 of that chapter what the reason for their generosity was. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 6, they gave themselves first to the Lord, Paul writes. And then by the will of God to us. That's the faith of Abel as seen in his offering, dear friends. And though we know nothing else about him from the scriptures, we know enough. It was by faith that Abel made his more acceptable offering to God and God had regard for it. Now, we are completely out of time. I know that. <laughs> That's okay, because as I said earlier, really the whole ball game is right there in that first part about Abel's offering. The rest of it just follows on after it, I think. Does it not? Here on Abel's commendation, the second part of the, verse 4, on Abel's commendation, continuing, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And having gone to such lengths to explain the Genesis 4 text, I hope you can see now how it is that the pastor can say it is through his sacrifice, through which, it says there in the middle of verse 4, but I argue that the word which there refers to his sacrifice. It was through his sacrifice that Abel was commended by God as righteous. How can the pastor say that? Well, because in the offering of that more acceptable sacrifice, what is it that God was commending? Well, Abel's faith, of course. And I said last week that to commend has the sense of approving or of according with a good report. Abel's sacrifice was the expression of his faith. God sees that faith, meaning God sees both Abel's internal heart disposition and God sees Abel's act of offering the best of his flock. God sees that faith and God commends him as righteous. Because Abel was righteous... And then just to make sure we get it, the pastor adds, God commending him by accepting his gifts. Just to make it clear that it was through his sacrifice that Abel received divine attestation as righteous. My righteous one shall live by faith, Hebrews 10 verse 38 said. And here we are, first out of the gate, righteous Abel. I like how one preacher puts it. Here's the connection, he says. When there is authentic faith, that faith will produce practical, living, authentic righteousness. James says essentially the same thing when he argues that faith and works are inseparable. True living faith produces fruit, living action which then leaves only the very end of verse 4 now as we close with only the briefest of comment about Abel's witness. 
I'll come back to this more next week when we discuss Enoch, but we can't leave it out just entirely this morning. And through his faith, the pastor concludes in verse 4, though Abel died, he still speaks. Now, my prayer is that we have experienced something of that reality of that verse even today. That this son of Eve, the mother of all the living, has now through scripture spoken powerfully to us still. Can you fathom this? From the very earliest moments of human history comes now to us in the year 2020, the example of Abel. Through his act of faith recorded in scripture, he still speaks. And he does that though he died, the pastor remarks. I think intending for us to bring to mind the fact that Cain murdered his brother. The pastor seems to mean that not even Cain's vengeful murder could stop this. Quite the opposite, in fact. For as the first of many who died in faith, Abel heads here the chorus of witnesses who speak from the pages of Scripture, testifying that the God who promises is faithful even as their blood is shed. Death was not the end of his story, and it will not be the end of ours either. His death would, of course, mean the end of his line. The seed of the woman prophesied by the Lord himself would go through Seth, not Abel. Genesis chapter 4, verse 25 says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. He certainly did. But that did not stop the Lord's plan. And it did not stop the eternal witness of Abel's great faith. It is, after all, Abel's faith that is recalled for us today, not Seth's. May his example still speak and stir in us that faith that meets with the commendation of the Lord. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.